Lord Jesus, thank you for this morning. Thank you, Lord, for allowing us to be together as brothers and sisters in this place to lift our hearts to you, Lord Jesus, so that they might be prepared to hear from you, to be taught, so we might, might learn to a deeper degree your holiness, that we might learn to a deeper degree reverence for you and respect for your word, obedience to it. Lord, I pray this morning that you would probe our hearts, search us, Lord God, and know us whether there be any unclean thing in us. And if there is, Lord, I pray you would root it out. And Lord, we would seek your face that you might deliver us. I pray, Lord Jesus, that your spirit would move among us and transform our hearts, transform our minds, transform lives through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. You guys were belting it out this morning. This was, sounded wonderful. Um, Children's Church, you guys can go ahead and go, but I wanted to remind you, you might be outside today. Uh, so if you have a jacket, you probably want to take that with you. I also want to just take a moment to thank Doug Knoxel uh, for the, the very good job he did this morning in Sunday school, taking us through the beginning of Galatians. I, I really enjoyed our time together there this morning. And um, as I often do, um, I see God's timing just when, when he works certain things out uh, in just what seems to be coincidental uh, ways, but they're not coincidental at all. It's God orchestrating our lives. And I think of uh, some of the things Doug shared in his Sunday school this morning and some of the things that I've studied this week in Colossians, and, and uh, I just marvel again at God's timing. And uh, there'll be more on that next week. I, I just, um, if, if anyone is concerned or worried that God may not be moving in our fellowship, I, I just hope um, that he will dispel that, um, that worry in you. All of us in our lives, I think, sometimes can, can, can feel like, Lord, I would, I would like to, I'd like to know, I'd like to sense your presence, I'd like to sense that you're working in my life and, um, and sometimes it can be hard to discern those things I've noticed in my own life one of the ways God has in a, in a subjective sense affirmed what I believe and affirmed that he is with me and that he is working in my life is the impeccable timing of things that unfold in my life and uh, next week's is as good an example of that as um, anything I can imagine with getting to baptize all the kids and then I look forward to where we're at in the text next week and I'm like, what? That had to be God. Um, anyway, um, I also want to just make sure real quick before I proceed any further that um, I, I make a plug for the prayer gathering. Last time we met and, and we gathered for prayer, um, it was an amazing time together, an amazingly encouraging time together. Uh, just a, a sweet time of fellowship and worship and 
just pouring our hearts out to God together. So if you're able to come, sign up and come. That would be a, a wonderful thing if you came with us. And uh, some of the things that we're going to be praying for um, are very relevant in light of what we're talking about in the sermon today in Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 to 10. Let me read that passage of Scripture for us. Paul says in Colossians 2, starting in verse 8, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in Him you've been made complete. And He is the head. He is the head over all rule and authority. April's a big birthday month for the pains. Uh, my mom's birthday is on April 9th. Mandy's dad's birthday is April 1st. Zeke's birthday is April the 12th. Caleb just turned 18 this past Tuesday on the 18th. And Gideon turned 16 years old today. So, yeah. Happy years ago. It blows my mind uh, that they are all getting that much older. I'm not though. I'm not aging a bit. (laughs) Um, If you who are parents are anything like Mandy and I, you spend hours upon hours pondering how best to raise your kids, how to establish them with a firm foundation, uh, how to shield them and protect them from the dangers in the world how to expose them appropriately to the dangers of this world for the purpose of warning them. You spend hours and hours thinking of how to strengthen them to withstand when those dangers are faced, because they will face them. You spend hours and hours preparing how to ready them to leave home when they are of age. And as Christian parents, we do all of this with the hope and the prayer and the strong desire that they will adopt and embrace the, the worldview that we've tried to instill in them, the worldview of the Bible. We want it to be their own so that they will be able to navigate the pitfalls of this life with God's help as we have and as we are doing. In short, when it comes to our children, when it comes to their time to embark on their own course in life, we don't want to send them off empty, empty of resources. We want them to be well supplied for what they will face in life, don't we? When our children are small, the most frightening thought is to ponder that our kids could be kidnapped. There have been times when we've been awakened in the middle of the night after having a nightmare that one of the kids was taken. And even after realizing, oh goodness, it was just a dream, we still go to their bedrooms, right, and check on them to make sure they're there just to set our minds to rest. And even after doing that, though, that nightmare is going to keep us from ever getting back to sleep that night. You've all been there, I'm sure. Many of you have heard the story of what happened to Annabeth when she was three years old back in 2020. She wandered out of our fenced-in backyard 
and decided that she was going to take a little walk all by herself down the street behind our house, all the way down to Keener Park, which is probably about a quarter mile away. So off she went, thinking that she was all by herself. But thankfully, she was accompanied by our faithful hound dog, Hank. And she made it all the way down the street to the busy Barrett Road intersection, the crossing there to enter into Keener Park. And at the very moment that she was about to cross the busy road, God in his mercy alerted and sent a neighbor who was a stranger to us to pick up Annabeth and to keep her from harm. And at which point Hank, the faithful hound dog, ran as fast as he could back to our house and began scratching at the front door to let us know that she was gone. We didn't know. I wasn't home at the time. Mandy was. Mandy called me in a panic. And you can imagine how scared Mandy and I were and how relieved we were when Annabeth was back with us a few minutes later. There's two occasions in my life when I've seen little children wandering about with no supervision in very potentially dangerous situations. Once I was delivering pizza for Donato's when I was in college, and it was over on Pippin Road between Springdale and, and Struble, in the middle of rush hour traffic. And out of my left window, I notice a toddler stumbling just as he was about to walk into the busy road. He was coming from the town terrace apartments, which is almost right there on the corner of Struble and Pippin. I immediately slammed on my brakes. I began blowing my horn feverishly. I pulled halfway into the lane of oncoming traffic. And I don't know how I was able to think to do this so quickly, because it happened in a flash. Uh, But my hope was to stop both lanes of traffic from moving until the little child was out of danger. I hopped out of my car. I went and I picked up that little child. And I walked toward the apartment complex carrying him to try to find his parents. I just left my car running in the middle of the road. (laughs) People were giving me high five, like they were like thumbs up, good job. It was kind of funny. Thankfully, those looking after the child realized he was gone and they came running to get him from me. Um, He had not gotten all that far from them, but far enough that he was in great danger. There was another instance. When I was walking in the neighborhood in Montgomery, just across the street from where I used to work in Ohio National, and it's a quiet little neighborhood, not much traffic, and so as I was walking up ahead of me, I saw a little boy. And as I got closer to him, I realized he was all by himself. He was not even two years old. He couldn't have been, and he was just wandering about in the street in front of me. And when I reached him, um, I noticed he wasn't in any danger. There was no traffic, like I said, but I, uh, there was no person there to watch him. I didn't pick up this child because he wasn't in any immediate danger. And I didn't want to concern any neighbors about who's that creepy dude who doesn't live around us picking up this kid in the neighborhood. You know, so I, I, I kept the child in my field of vision and I walked two houses down across the street where I saw a, a couple out working in their flower beds. And uh, I pointed out the wondering little toddler to them and the lady recognized him. Apparently this had happened before and she knew where he lived. And so that, that lady went and took the child by the hand and guided him back home, knocked on the door and gave him back to his mother, who had let him go out of the house somehow without her noticing it. Now, I had kids already when this second incident occurred. It wasn't all that long ago. It might have been, might have been 10 years ago. 
But I had children of my own. And that whole series of events prompted me to pray. Lord, you say that whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. Please, Lord, if anything of this nature ever happens to one of my kids, send someone with kind intentions to help them back home. And when all that happened with Annabeth many years later, the Lord answered that prayer. We're all not out of the woods yet. We still got a lot of them that are under 18, so they might wander outside of the home. So, Lord, please continue to send people with kind intentions. Because sadly, there are many with wicked intentions, are there not? Amen. Who would prey upon little ones. Little ones who, who stray like this. And their existence stirs up fear in the hearts of parents. When Caleb and Gideon and Abe were much younger, we showed them a video that was produced and posted on YouTube of a man who wanted to do an experiment with children while their parents observed. The man making the video wanted to display how easy it was to lead children into going along with a kidnapper. So he went to the moms who were at the playground with their kids and he asked them if he could try to convince their children to come with him to his car. He told them, I'm making a documentary here. Most moms thought that their kids would never consent to go with a stranger to their car because after all, they had taught them stranger danger, right? We all try to teach our kids that. But the man received their permission to try this as an experiment. And what he did is he went back to his car and he brought out a very cute little puppy. And he went simply over to the playground and he just sat down next to it. He didn't say anything to anybody. He didn't have to say anything. The kids saw the puppy and they went over one after another to see that cute puppy and to talk to the stranger. The man engaged them in conversation with a soft voice, one you would talk to a cute puppy with, right? And he told each of the kids that he had another puppy in his car. Would they like to come and see it? One by one, one by one, the children followed the stranger to his car. And the parents in the video were shocked. And I remember looking at the faces of my kids, Caleb, Gideon, and Abraham. I believe it was those three. It might have been Titus as well. I remember looking at their faces as they watched the video. The fear that this video produced in them. You see, they were watching the tactic of an evil enemy be exposed. The devil, the Bible tells us, masquerades as an angel of light. But it's for the purpose of ensnaring and kidnapping. They realized as they watched this, their own susceptibility to this tactic. And it frightened them. It's not one of the duties of a pastor and an elder to do for their flock what we as parents do for our children, to warn them of the dangers on the horizon, the threats that could abduct them and lead them astray down a path away from the fellowship of God's people and into deception 
If we as pastors and elders don't warn of the troublesome ideas and movements and philosophies and falsehoods that you may encounter, we're leaving a very important part of our job undone. On Wednesday nights with the youth group, Pastor Eddie and I and Rachel and Matt and, and, and Dave Keller are going through a video series with the, youth, with the youth group called The War on Truth. And it's an uncomfortable set of videos because what we're trying to do is expose the kids to the tactics of the enemy. There are certain battlegrounds in our culture where there is a, an immense and a hot war against the truth. And we're trying to expose them to what does the world say about these issues? What is the danger of these issues? And let's compare it and contrast it with what the scripture says. And it can sometimes bring out the emotion of offensiveness. It can sometimes cause people to be uncomfortable to talk about some of these issues. But we dare not ignore them. There is real danger of captivity, of being captured by the philosophies and the ideas that are in this world. The Apostle Paul, in writing to the church at Colossae, had a very similar concern for his spiritual children. Paul was made aware of a danger by his brother Epaphras to the Colossian church and the other churches in the Lycus Valley. You remember Hierapolis and Laodicea? And Paul likens likens those posing this danger to kidnappers in the verses before us today. And like a parent warning their children of the dangers that they may face, Paul is warning the church in Colossae of the dangers that they will face. In my last sermon on verses 1 to 7, I indicated to you, this was a few weeks back, that the verses before us today will introduce us to what theologians call the Colossian heresy. And I told you that defining precisely what that heresy is or giving it a name is difficult because Paul doesn't do that here. He doesn't name it in chapter 2. But what he does do is he describes four problematic aspects of the heresy. And these her- this heresy had four characteristics, right? They were these, and I announced them as a preview ahead of time. The first one is human philosophy. The second one is legalism. The third one is mysticism. And the fourth one is asceticism. My intent today is just to discuss the first of these characteristics that Paul deals with. So I have two main objectives today for the sermon, just two main points, and they are these. First point is the emptiness of human philosophy. And the second is the fullness of Christ. The emptiness of human philosophy. Let's go to the first point. Chapter 2, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. So see to it, Paul says. This is synonymous with watchfulness. Being on guard, being alert, paying attention and proceeding with caution and awareness of your surroundings. Matthew 7.15, Jesus tells his disciples, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. 2 Peter 3.17, a same sentiment. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, 
Be on your guard. See, he was warning them beforehand. He described what the threat was, and he said, you know beforehand you're going to meet this threat. Knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. The phrase is a present tense imperative. It implies that danger was near and approaching. How could the Colossians know what to look out for if Paul didn't give them certain descriptors of the dangers to be on the outlook for? They couldn't. They couldn't. He wants them to see to it that no one takes them captive. And the word for captive only appears here in the New Testament. It literally means kidnap. It literally means kidnap or to take as spoils of war or conquest. Brother Doug, I know you're reading out of the King James Version. It says, beware lest any man spoil you, right? To take his spoil is what that means. To kidnap. The threat thus was not just a, a passive threat. That's realized because you know, someone's careless or inattentive or immature within the church. It, it's an active, calculating, aggressive threat from without that seeks to do harm. It's a planned attack on the church. The Colossians, based on what Paul says in verse 5, uh, we had read that in the previous sermon, they had thus far not been taken captive. But Paul was trying to convey to them the severity and the reality of the approaching threat. It was at the door. And as Doug went through Galatians today, it just it dawned on me, you know, there's a lot of similarities between Galatians and Colossians. And the reason Paul is so much harsher to the Galatians is because they have fallen prey to the captors in some ways. They had bought into the wrong ideas. Paul had already described, though, to the Colossians back in chapter 1, verse 13. Um, he already described uh, as, as those God, he had described the Colossians as those that God had rescued from the domain of darkness and had transferred them to the kingdom of his beloved son. And so now they were in danger of being ensnared and captured and taken back to that dark domain from which they had been rescued. And the nature of the threat was not a physical attack or a kidnapping in a literal sense. It was an ideological one. It was a false teaching. The kidnappers were seeking to entice the Colossians away through philosophy. Could actually, in the, in, the, in the Greek, you could translate this into the English as through that philosophy or through the philosophy. For some reason, no English translation includes the definite article, but it's there in the Greek. Paul is referring to something specific. It was a specific philosophy that was threatening to ensnare the Colossians. That word <coughs> philosophy just comes from the two Greek words phileo and sophia, which is uh, friend or love. And wisdom. It just means to a lover of wisdom. And Paul doesn't uh, condemn philosophy outright, all philosophy outright. The term, he, as he uses it here, is in a broader sense than the, the academic discipline that we normally think of when we think of philosophy. It had a broader uh, application in those days. According to a historian named Adolf Schlatter, who wrote about this time, he said everything that had to do with theories about God, the world, and the meaning of human life was called philosophy at this time. Not only in pagan schools, but also 
in uh, religious schools, even the Jewish schools of Greek cities. In other words, even religious systems could be described as philosophies during the time when Paul wrote this. Josephus, another first century historian, uh, wrote of the three philosophical sects of the Jews, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes. And though Paul appears to be thinking of a particular philosophy, though, he does not name it. But he does refer to it in some descriptive language. And here's what he says about this philosophy. He says it's an empty deception. The philosophy was not based on truth. Unlike the gospel, you recall back in chapter 1, verse 5, Paul described the gospel as the word of truth. The philosophy purported to offer a knowledge but it was a knowledge in contrast to the true knowledge that they had learned in the gospel. Remember that term, epinosis, that we've talked about? It appeared back in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. It appeared in chapter 2, verse 2. This philosophy was in contrast to that. The philosophy threatening the Colossians was meant to deceive. Not to impart true knowledge of God and salvation. The, The false teachers had it all packaged up nice. It looked good. It displayed like it was a real treasure. But those who would follow after it in a quest to find that supposed treasure would end up opening a box that was empty. You remember the last time that we were together? It's been a few weeks back. I spent a good bit of time highlighting the descriptive words that Paul used to describe Jesus in Colossians. Back in verses 2 to 3, Paul uses words like all and fullness and wealth and treasure I stressed then that Paul was intent on impressing to the Colossians the incredible value of what they had discovered in Jesus Christ. It was a treasure. Well, this emptiness that he talks about now is in contrast to that value. What the purveyors of this deceptive philosophy were offering was emptiness. And it was empty for three reasons. Here's the three reasons. They're all introduced to us with this preposition, according to, according to, according to. Here's the three reasons why it was empty. That, that phrase, according to, means it's, it's in agreement with, or it was, this came from something. It came from this. The first one is that it was because it was according to the tradition of men. And tradition simply means handed down from one man to another. The philosophy was not a new philosophy. It was one that had elements that were handed down from one person to the next over the course of generations. Just because people had believed something for a long time, for generations, does not make it true. Incidentally, the scriptures do not disparage tradition altogether, especially the apostolic traditions, right? The traditions that were handed to them from Jesus and from the apostles, he speaks very high, the, the, the scriptures speak very highly of those things. What the scripture condemns in terms of traditions is the traditions, the traditions of men. Mark 7, verses 5 through 9, Jesus is chastising the Pharisees, and he says, there's a little, a little episode here where the Pharisees and the scribes, they ask him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands? And Jesus said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy about you, hypocrites. 
As it's written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men, Jesus said to them. You are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. The philosophy was empty because it had man as its source. The history of philosophy in our day illustrates this point. Philosophers have built on the work of previous philosophers, either to refine their systems or to refute their systems. Francis Schaeffer, a great Christian philosopher, by the way, in his book, The God Who Is There, emphasized that man cannot begin with himself and arrive at ultimate reality. He wrote this, One man would draw a circle and say, you can live within this circle. The next man would, would come along and cross it out and would draw his own circle, a different circle. And then the next man would come along and crossing out the previous circle, draw his own. On and on, on and on, ad infinitum. What he was saying is that without light from beyond the natural world, mankind gropes in the darkness stumbling endlessly to arrive at an explanation for their origin, at an explanation for their purpose, at an explanation for their destiny. No human philosophy based on the traditions of men can ever answer any of those three questions in their ultimate sense. They will always be found wanting. They will always leave their adherence empty. Yet each philosophy has its purveyors that espouse their teaching as the arrival, finally, the arrival of a system that truly and ultimately makes sense of the world about us. But it always comes to naught. And it's always replaced by the next great idea. In defiance of all of these man-made philosophies, all of these man-made systems of philosophical traditions stands the gospel of Jesus Christ. Unaltered, undefeated, unmoved, and unsurpassed in 2,000 years. The Colossian heresy was empty because it was based on the traditions of man. But it was also, another thing he says, it was also according to the elementary principles of the world. And this phrase is just a little bit harder to unpackage to get to the bottom of it. What does Paul mean by this? Well, there's basically three possibilities for what he means by this, this phrase, the elementary principles of the world. The first is this. Paul basically meant elementary principles in the sense of basic or rudimentary. It can be taken this way. Like the things you learn in elementary school. Basic counting and the alphabet or in the case of many elementary schools today, activism and gender theory, right? Sadly, that's not funny. It's not really a joke in our day because they do teach these things in elementary school now. But we would really think of it as the basics. So if this is what Paul meant by the word elementary principles, what he was saying is that to adopt the philosophy that these false teachers were purveying, after having received Christ Jesus, the Lord, as he said they did back in verse 6, it would be like they were going back to kindergarten after they had already achieved an advanced graduate degree. And it makes sense that way. You can take it that way. 
The second potential meaning, though, of this phrase is that the elemental things referred to the four most basic elements identified in the ancient world. Air, water, fire, earth. These elements were often seen in conflict with one another. But there's a third possibility as well. And it's reflected in the English Standard Version's translation of the verse. And it identifies the term as elemental spirits. If you have the ESV, you can see that. Richard Malick Jr., he's the one who wrote the New American Commentary notes for the book of Colossians. He, read, he wrote this regarding this. He said, in some teachings, the elements were the signs of the zodiac and powers that occupied planets. In Jewish circles, the elements often applied to supernatural beings who ruled over people. Some considered them demons. Paul most probably employed a variation of this Jewish terminology since most other elements of the heresy make sense when approached from that perspective. Other commentators kind of agree with this. Not all do, but here's a few others that do. Douglas Moo, in his commentary, agrees with this interpretation. So does F.F. Bruce, in his commentary. John MacArthur holds it out as a valid possibility of interpreting this text as well. In that case, Paul was addressing a system of thought that included doing homage to elemental spirits. Elemental beings. And it could have had astrological connections as well. And if it did, it would make perfect sense. An astrological understanding of the universe was widespread in that culture. Great men, even before that time, great men such as Alexander the Great, great men such as Julius Caesar, they believed in astrology intrinsically. They thought their lives were guided by the course of the cosmos and the stars and the constellations. Philo was a first century Jewish historian and he wrote this in his commentary on the Decalogue. He says, There's no, or, or, he says, there is an error of no small importance which has taken possession of the greater portion of mankind concerning a subject which was likely by itself or at least above all other subjects to have been fixed with, fixed with the greatest correctness and truth in the mind of everyone. For some nations have made divinities of the four elements, earth and water and air and fire, others of the sun and the moon and of the other planets and fixed stars, others again of the whole world. And they have all invented different appellations, all of them false, for these false gods put out of sight that most supreme and most ancient of all, the creator, the ruler of the great city, the general of the invincible army, the pilot who always guides everything to its preservation. So what Philo was saying here was that a mindset like that, an astrologically bent mindset, was very common in those days. John MacArthur wrote the following about those who followed astrology and the elemental spirits in those days. People who believed in astrology were caught in the grip of a rigid determinism. The influence of the stars and the planets controlled their destiny unless they had the secret knowledge to escape that control. So this understanding of the elementary or the elementary principles makes the most sense in my opinion. Based on the context of what, what Paul writes here, Paul was already in chapter 1 asserted Jesus' superiority over all the things on earth and in heaven and he identified the latter things, the things in heaven as thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities. 
He's speaking about spiritual beings in, those, in that, that passage. And he repeats some of that, that same language here in the next verses. He's the head over all rule and authority, he says in chapter 2, verse 10. In chapter 2, verse 15, he says, When he had disarmed the rulers and the authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. So the philosophy threatening to capture the Colossians had a spiritual component to it as well. That was attempting to obtain knowledge through certain spirit beings via practices handed down through the traditions of man. It promised a treasure, but it delivered emptiness. And the third and final reason for its emptiness, for the emptiness of that philosophy, was because it was not according to Christ. Indeed, based on the verses that follow, it called into question who Jesus was. And this was the most insidious aspect of the Colossian heresy, that threat that they were facing, that philosophy that they were facing. 2, 9, and 10 says, For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you've been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. In him, in Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwells. Whatever that heresy was threatening the Colossians, Paul's tactic in combating it was the constant drumbeat of Jesus' deity. From that hymn back in chapter 1, verse 15 to 20, to this verse right here, Paul could not have been clearer about the nature of who Jesus was, the nature of Christ's person. He was God. Jesus was God. This verse, 2.9, is the strongest, most direct, unequivocal statement of Jesus' deity in all of the epistles. It just comes right out and says it. He's God. All attempts to disprove the deity of Jesus shatter on the rock of this verse. It's a clarification. Paul had previously stated something just like it in chapter 1, verse 19. He says, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him. So it would seem that that the enemy's philosophy was intent to call into question the deity and the sufficiency of Jesus. And it would seek to ensnare the Colossians by convincing them that they needed the guidance or the wisdom or the knowledge that could be provided by some other spiritual, elemental beings. So the use of the phrase elementary principles or elemental spirits back in verse 8 combined with the mention of rule and authority in verse 10 and in 15, it gives strong support to this conclusion. There was a demonic element to the Colossian heresy. Paul goes on, he describes Jesus' deity in another way in verse 9. He said all of that deity dwells in bodily form. And this is also not the first time Paul has drawn attention to the physical body of Jesus. Back in chapter 122, he stated, Yet he was now, he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. So except in this case, he uses a word in the Greek which is unique to this verse to describe the body, and it refers most likely to the physical, yet glorified, post-resurrection body of Jesus. Recall, Jesus' physical body, when it was resurrected, took on a new and glorified, immortal and imperishable state. It is and always will be this body where the fullness of deity dwells. The God-man 
in his glorified physical state reigns in the heavenly realms even today. The body's in heaven reigning. The glorified body of Jesus is in heaven reigning. And this matters here because the Colossian heresy also had seems to have elements of Gnosticism in it, which discounted the importance of body. In fact, treated all flesh and all body or all physical material things as evil and only good things could be spiritual. Nothing good could be physical, according to this heresy. Paul goes on with another implication for the Colossians. In verse 10, he says this to them. In him, in Jesus the one in whom all the fullness of deity dwells bodily, in him you've been made complete. And this is an amazing thought to ponder. When you look at the Greek, the word for complete is derived from the same word, pleru, that forms the word fullness, used in verse 9 to describe the fullness of deity. In other words, just as the fullness of deity dwells in Jesus... Jesus' fullness completes or fills those who are in him. And this is not teaching, hear me here on this, this is not teaching that we become deity when we become Christians. That's not what he's saying here. That would be a, a gross, drastic overstatement of what Paul meant here. Paul's emphasizing in yet another way just how valuable it is for one to be in Christ the resources available to those who belong to Christ are glorious and they're unattainable via any other medium. No other spirituality, no other philosophy will complete or fill a soul as Jesus can. They may capture many with their deceptiveness. They may pull the wool over some people's eyes for a while. But eventually, eventually the emptiness will become apparent and unavoidable. Eventually their identity as kidnappers will be exposed. Those who condemn their captors or captives to an eternity of rigid determinism leading to an empty fate. None can match the spiritual riches and treasure of those who are in Christ Jesus. None can match the spiritual riches and treasures of those who are rescued by Jesus Christ from this dark domain. And the reason is, Jesus is the head over all of them. Over all rule and authority. Paul's not denying that these other spirit beings exist. But he's saying, why even bother? Why even bother looking elsewhere? for the, the spiritual blessing or, or wisdom when the king over all has granted personal access to himself for all of those who are in him. What can they give you that Jesus hasn't already given you? What knowledge can they give you that Jesus doesn't already have? What wisdom can they give you? What power can they give you that will match what Jesus has in store for you? He's the head over all rule and authority. He's the only one in his rulership, as it says in verse 15, 
of, Col of Colossians chapter 2. He's the only one who has the power to disarm those rulers and authorities, to make a public display or spectacle of them, and to triumph over them through his cross. He's the only one. He's the only one. Let me draw our time to conclusion here. Tell you a little story about what happened on Tuesday when Caleb's birthday. He wanted to go see a musical at the Aronoff Center downtown, and he'd never gone to see one in person before. So we got tickets some months ago to a show. Oh, wait, first I had to take a mortgage out of my house, and then we bought tickets to the show. And uh, some months ago, and uh, he'd been wanting to see it for a while. It was called Hades Town. Have you guys, anybody seen Hades Town or, or, or seen anything about it or heard the music? Caleb had heard the music and he liked it, and so he wanted to go see it. And so it's a musical that's retelling the ancient Greek myth of Orpheus and Eurydice. Anybody a Greek myth scholar by any chance? A couple people. It's over, over Valerie's head. Son's like, yeah, I know that one. Well, it's a classic Greek tragedy, um, which means it doesn't have a happy ending, right? Remember, John talked about tragedies and comedies not that long ago. Well, this was a tragedy. And I'm not normally one who enjoys musicals very much, but I, I have to say that this one was entertaining. Um, in the story, young Orpheus, um, with a singing voice so beautiful, it can almost summon the spring falls in love with the beautiful young girl, Eurydice. And the two enjoy a short season of love together. But all of a sudden, Eurydice dies unexpectedly from a snake bite. And she descends into the underworld, which is governed by Hades, hence the term Hades Town. So Hades, if you were looking in the Roman astrological sense, would be called uh, Pluto, in case you're interested in that kind of thing. Orpheus, though, because Eurydice has died, he is so saddened that he sings a song so mournful and beautiful that the god Hermes, or Mercury, if you're thinking of the Romans, convinces Orpheus to go to the underworld and rescue Eurydice. So he does. He goes. He goes armed only with his lyre and his voice. He goes and he, he sings a song so beautiful and so sweet for Hades and his wife Persephone that they consent to let him go back to the world of the living with Eurydice. But at this point, some new characters get involved that proves to make the trial before Orpheus and Eurydice a lot harder than it would have otherwise been. These characters are called the Fates. The fates. They are the cruel determiners of everyone's destiny. And after the show, Caleb, joined, Caleb pointed out to me that the, the true bad guys in the story are not, is not Hades. It's, it's not Hades. Hades act is actually a victim as well. The, the true bad guys in this story are the fates. They're the fates. Hades originally wanted to keep Eurydice for his own, but, but, but Orpheus' song convinced him to change his mind. 
But these fates, what they do, the way they're depicted in this play are these sort of like harpy-like female beings who kind of sing in the background. And their song sort of influences or hypnotizes or convinces people on the emotional level. And they control the outcome via their song. And so what happens is they get involved at this point in time and they sing a song to Hades and they make Hades apply three conditions. Three conditions. I held two fingers up. Three conditions so that, that Orpheus and Eurydice can, can go on their own. Here's what they were. The first condition is this. They must take the long journey back that Orpheus took to make the journey to the underworld in the, in the beginning. And it was a long and arduous journey. The second condition, there was no shortcuts in other words. The second condition is that the two could not walk together side by side. Eurydice had to walk behind Orpheus the whole time. And the third condition, Orpheus could not look back at any point on the journey to see Eurydice, to see if she was still there. He couldn't do that until they had both crossed the threshold of the exit from the underworld. Otherwise, if they broke any of these three conditions, Eurydice would be forever lost in the underworld with Hades. So Orpheus and Eurydice, they set out on the long, arduous journey back to the land of the living. And the whole journey, the fates sing songs of doubt and discouragement into the ears of Eurydice and Orpheus. But they soldier on, keeping close watch over themselves to follow the three requirements precisely. But as they approach the journey's end, the fates sing so emphatically into Orpheus's ear that the doubts overwhelm him, thinking that he's been tricked by Hades and that Eurydice is not back there behind him any longer. And so just seconds after he steps over the threshold into the land of the living, he can resist the doubts no longer and he turns to see if Eurydice is there. And he finds that she's still following him but she was just behind the threshold of the gates into the world above. The two look longingly at each other in horror as the gates of Hades close like a mouth to swallow Eurydice and to take her forever back into the domain of darkness. He could not bring back the love of his life. Orpheus Sweet and strong as his voice was, was not a champion worthy enough to descend into the domain of darkness and bring back the one he loved. Orpheus nor Eurydice could escape their fated destinies. It was a true tragedy. Paul taught the Colossians of another champion, though. Amen? a champion far greater than Orpheus. And until this champion came, the destiny of every soul was for death and hell. There was no escape. The Colossian heretics taught that there may be another way. Maybe there's a, there's a secret way, a better philosophy, perhaps one that could defy the fates and escape the cycle of existence as it was under the gods or the elemental spirits, but the end result was emptiness. 
It was as empty as the hands of Orpheus that longed to hold Eurydice's face again. There's no man, there's no myth that can match the God-man of history. Jesus Christ. He's the head. He's the head over all rule and authority. He's the one who disarmed all of the rulers and authorities. He made a public display of them. He's the one that triumphed over all of them through his cross. There's no philosophy. There's no ideology on earth that can offer or compete with what the historic figure of Jesus Christ offers to and accomplishes for those who put their trust in him. A full escape from their destiny toward wrath. Eternal life and bliss in his presence forever and ever. Participation in the overthrow of the domain of darkness. And a resurrection every bit as real as his own when he returns with great glory to rule and to reign. And while this life lasts, he gives us a fullness and a completeness unmatched by any other worldview or religion on earth. None rose from the grave in a resurrection glory but Jesus. And none will rise unless they've trusted in him. In him all the fullness of deity dwells bodily forever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for what you give to those who are in you. Lord, nothing can compare. Nothing that this world has to offer No school of thought, no philosophy can even come close to the wisdom of your word and your ways. Nothing, no treasure packaged up as beautifully as it can can even come close to the glorious treasure of the gospel. Lord Jesus, help us to be vigilant in guarding against those who would take us captive. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Rise for the benediction. Again, I hope, I hope all of you will come back tonight for the generation's prayer gathering. Because in many ways we're praying for people who have been captured. And our hearts grieve for those that we know and our family and our friends who have decided that they want to deconstruct the faith that they inherited here and that they were taught by many of us even in this room. We want to pray for them. We want to pray for them that they would escape the captivity that they're in. So I pray, I implore you tonight to to come and be a part of that. It's important for God's people to pray. God can do amazing things. He can do works we cannot even fathom. And oftentimes he'll do it by arranging things in such a way you just can't believe. Like, God, you showed up. You showed up. We're praying he'll show up tonight as we pray together. Let me give you the benediction. Colossians 1, 13 to 14. For he rescued us 
from the domain of darkness. And he transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. Depart in the full assurance of that and in the full confidence of that and may his peace fill your lives. Amen.